We give thanks to God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love to all the saints, on account of the hope laid up for you in the heavens, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as also in all the world, and is itself bearing fruit, as also in you, from which day you heard it, and perceived the grace of God in truth, as also you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is for your sakes a faithful servant of Christ, who also has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This sentence, verses 3 through 8 of Colossians 1, as you know, divides into two sections. In the first part, we hear of the thanksgivings and the constant petitionary prayers of Paul and Timothy in behalf of the Colossians, which began at their very first hearing of a report of the faith in Christ and love to all the saints, both professed and manifested by the Colossians, and their thanksgivings were for that faith and love, not considered primarily, you will remember, in their present exercise, but with an eye toward the promise of eternal inheritance in glory, held forth to those who possessed that faith and that love. In other words, they gave thanks for their faith and love, but were di directed by that to an even loftier thought, from whence an even greater thanksgiving arose, as they contemplated the Colossians as heirs of the glorious heavenly inheritance, the hope laid up for you in the heavens. And of course, that very verse serves as a pivot uh, from which the second section of this sentence takes its rise, where Paul turns now to the contemplation of the advent of the gospel amongst the Colossians under seven considerations thus far. This hope, first of all, was not new to them, but had been, this hope of the internal inherit, uh, inheritance was not new to them, but had been held forth to them before in the preaching of the gospel. Secondly, this gospel uh, that they had heard, which had held forth this truth, was and is the word of truth. It was totally accurate, without error. <coughs> <coughs> Thirdly, this gospel message did not originate with them, but it had arrived among them. They did not add to it or modify it, only received it and believed it. Fourthly, this gospel was the same gospel that had spread throughout Rome and beyond and was held by all the apostles in other churches. Fifthly, it was not nearly preached throughout all that region, but it was bearing fruit, souls being gathered into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Sixthly, it was doing this of itself. The gospel itself was bearing fruit, as it had to do, because it was and is a fruitful vine. And seventhly, they were no strangers to this fruit-bearing effect of the gospel, because this very gospel had been the power by which they had been translated from voluntary servitude in the kingdom of Satan to joyful service, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, 
And each one of those things directly served the apostles' main purpose, which was to show the sufficiency and the power of the original gospel and to call them to the remembrance of that gospel that was first preached unto them in opposition to and in refutation of the errors that had only later arisen and that from false teachers, not from the apostles or their approved laborers. Now we turn to a consideration today of the latter half of verse 6 through verse 8. Paul continues in the same vein and with the same purpose and intent, which we interrupted uh, last week. And we are again hearing of the advent of the gospel in Colossae and also of the man who first brought it to them. And we have an important validation of his character and of his message and of his ministry. And then we have another reminder of the Colossians' godly fruit. And we have to go back a little bit and remind ourselves of what precedes uh, the second half of verse 6 and briefly look at the contents of this, uh, this whole verse. We are talking, of course, about the gospel. He has said that that was in the gospel that they had this hope, that they had heard of this hope in the gospel, this gospel that was the word of truth. And he has called attention in the beginning of verse 6 to the arrival of the gospel among the Colossians and to its widespread presence in all the world. The gospel came to you just as it is present in all the world. This same gospel came to you. And he has called attention, secondly, to its natural fruitfulness, which was both in all the world and amongst the Colossians. And it is with regard to this fruit-bearing among the Colossians that our next clause comments. To paraphrase a bit, we could read this entire section that we're talking about now uh, as follows. And the gospel is itself bearing fruit in all the world, just as also it bore fruit or is bearing fruit in you. From the day in which you heard it, and perceived the grace of God in truth. So not only are the Colossians not strangers to the fruit-bearing power of the gospel, they have experienced, they did experience that fruit-bearing power from the very first entry of the gospel into Colossae. There was no time delay In other words, this is very important. There was no opportunity for anything additional to that original gospel to have been involved in this fruit bearing. The gospel had been bearing fruit in Colossae from its very first entrance. Uh, Literally, it is from which day you heard it. From which day, from the very day that you heard it. It has been bearing fruit. Now there's something else important here in this uh, latter half of verse 6. We have not only uh, the fact that it has been bearing fruit from its very entry 
into Colossae from the very day that it first arrived, we also have a description of how the gospel was received. And this is intimately related to its fruit bearing. From which day you heard it and perceived, understood, knew intimately the grace of God in truth. So first of all, they heard the gospel. We have pointed out before, and the scriptures repeatedly affirm, that we cannot partake of the blessings of the gospel until we have heard the gospel. This is why the heathen cannot be saved apart from the missionary, great commission, proclamation of the gospel. If faith is necessary to justification, then you must have a promise upon which to fix your faith, something to believe. And while nature, the testimony of God in creation, declares God's glory, that he is and that he ought to be worshipped, the creation does not and cannot Proclaim the right approach to God, the right way of the worship of God, and it cannot proclaim the redemptive message of the gospel that God has sent His Son and that in Him is forgiveness of sin. That comes only in the Word of God in the Scriptures, only from special revelation, as we call it, as opposed to general revelation. But having said that, we know that merely hearing the gospel is not salvific, nor is the widespread proclamation of the gospel its fruit-bearing. Many hear the word and go away, or they mock, or they persecute, like those that we heard of in the book of Acts today, who, who st were stirred up against Paul and Barnabas for preaching the gospel, and tried to thrust them out of the city. And as we go on in the narrative, we'll see that they become even more agitated, and the Jews seek to kill Paul, and some men even put a vow upon themselves that they won't eat or drink until they've killed Paul. So it's they not just hearing the gospel is not enough, is it? It isn't it wouldn't be enough for Paul to say that that it brought forth fruit from the very first day that you heard the gospel. Because there's more, more to the fruit bearing of the gospel than merely its proclamation. To the Greeks it's foolishness and to the Jews it's a stumbling block. And so our text adds from which day you heard it, from which day you heard the gospel and perceived the grace of God in truth. And the word here is not the, the normal Greek word for know, as it is translated in the, uh, in the AV, which is the word gnosko, which means to know. This is the word epignosko, which is a compound word, which means to know something thoroughly, to know it intimately, to have understanding and inward perception of something. See, there's a great difference. Let me see if I can explain it. One might hear the gospel and thereby know it. That is, you can recite it as to its form or creed. You can repeat the gospel. You can speak to something of its purpose or discourse on its nature, but it's all an academic knowledge, an external knowledge, a theologian's knowledge, if you will. This is not the knowledge described here. This is the spiritual knowledge of the gospel. When the mind is enlightened and renewed, when there is a spiritual experience of the power of gospel truth, 
Some call this fanaticism, some call it enthusiasm. The Bible, of course, calls it true salvation. Let me give you an illustration that will explain this a little bit, I believe. A man can go to college and to medical school, and he can become an expert in pathology, in the study of disease, and he can become comprehensively knowledgeable about the causes of disease, about the symptoms of disease, about the course of disease, and he can discourse long on the mechanisms of the body involved, of the nature of infection, and the identity of the invading agent, and the physiological relationships of symptoms to infection, and how the body responds, and he can do so with long Latin medical terms. On the other hand, here is a man suffering from the ravages of disease, his body is racked with pain and agony, and his countenance is disfigured, and his face haggard and weary. His academic knowledge of his condition is much more limited than the doctor which we have described. He knows only in a general way, perhaps, how he got the disease, or perhaps very little at all. He knows only a small amount about what it's doing, technically speaking. His terminology is simple, perhaps sometimes even erroneous. But he knows. He knows intimately. He epigenoscos the power of the disease in a way that the doctor cannot even begin to comprehend. And that's, in a negative way, the contrast that we have here. Not merely to hear the gospel and to be able to recite its form and letter in a catechism, but to spiritually know the gospel, to know it intimately, thoroughly, inwardly, individually, in its mind-renewing, heart-cleansing, soul-saving, sinner-justifying power. And this gospel, or rather the content of this gospel, which is so known, is called here the grace of God in truth. When they heard it, and understood it, what they understood was the grace of God in truth. That's because the essence of the gospel is a revelation of the grace of God. It is a revelation of God's mercy, God's free mercy towards undeserving sinners, His provision of a way of full and total pardon by the offering up of His own Son for sin, with an invitation, even a command, to come and lay hold upon that pardon by faith in that Son, by trusting and resting upon Him, by believing the declaration of the offer of free pardon and entering into it, not by works, but by faith alone. The revelation of the Gospel is the revelation not of, deal of God's dealing with men as they deserve, but rather of God's dealing with men by a way of grace and mercy and love. The revelation of the gospel is the revelation of the grace of God. And it says in verse 6 that when they understood it, when they understood the gospel, when they took that spiritual intimate knowledge of the gospel, when their minds were enlightened, what they knew was the grace of God in truth. What does that mean? Well, a lot of things have been written about what that means. And 
uh, without covering the four or five different things that have been written about it and without insisting exactly on my one way, uh, I tend to agree with Calvin and Edie and Hendrickson that the idea is that they heard of the grace of God in its truth. That is, they heard a correct interpretation of the scheme of grace, as Edie says. Or as he says in another place, they possessed a true knowledge of the plan of salvation. And of course, he didn't mean that in the way that it's often said today. He means they possessed a true knowledge of the way of salvation, if you prefer. The relationship of grace and faith and Christ and so on. And why, why is it important that they possessed an accurate knowledge of the grace of God, that the presentation that was given to them was true? Well, it's because of what we're about to get into, which is that it was Epaphras who preached this to them, and so he's already saying, before he even mentions his name, that the gospel you heard, this original gospel, this gospel that presented to you the grace of God, this was not an erroneous declaration of the grace of God. This was not full of mistakes. This was this way of grace... Uh, uh, the grace of God, the pardon of God by the way of faith alone in Jesus Christ to receive the fullness, to have the enlightening of the mind and, 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 and the fullness of Christ. This was not a mistake. This was an accurate presentation. It was the grace of God in truth. And, and, and Epaphras is the one who delivered it to you and what he delivered was accurate and true. So we'll get to that in a moment. So then, uh, as we complete, really complete in, in the end of verse 6, the discussion of the gospel, primarily as to its nature and, and its, its entry there, we have then heard that it was uh, in the gospel was where they heard of that hope, uh, in that original gospel, the hope of the heavenly inheritance. It was the word of truth. It arrived to them. It was present in all the world. It was bringing forth fruit in all the world. It had brought forth fruit powerfully in them by its own power. It had done so from the very day that they heard it. It was a proclamation of the grace of God, and it was accurate in its presentation. Now, as we get into verse 7, the, the angle shifts a little bit, and we move from, from, the, from the, uh, the, the affirmation of the accuracy and the sufficiency of the original gospel, we move from the doctrine to the person who delivered the doctrine. And this is very, we'll, we'll see how important this is when we get to the end, after we go through the, uh, through the exposition. We'll consider why this is so important. Why is it important that he not only uh, defend the gospel itself and affirm its sufficiency and its accuracy in the way that they originally heard it, but also the integrity and the validity of the ministry of the one who delivered it. So let's hear what he has to say first. He says in verse 7, As also you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is for your sake a faithful servant of Christ. So the question answered here is not when did they hear it, not how did they hear it, not what power did it have on them, but from whom did they hear the gospel. Now, uh, he says that they heard and they understood the true scheme of the gospel, the revelation of the grace of God and truth, when they learned it from Epaphras. So here's a third term. 
they heard the gospel, they perceived spiritually, inwardly, the truth of the gospel, and now it says that they learned the gospel from Epaphras. And this is important. They were pupils in this affair, weren't they? Just like when he says it arrived among them, they didn't invent it, same thing here. They were pupils, they were learners. Uh, they, 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 have, they weren't the teachers, they were learners, and the, and the message that their teacher gave them was a true message. It was the grace of God in truth. So yet another reminder of their position when it came to this original gospel. They were hearers, they were believers, they were learners and receivers. Now who was it who had brought this, uh, this message? His name was Epaphras. It was he who had first declared this gospel to the Colossians. And this is so obvious from the context that that's the point here. It's amazing that anybody has ever challenged it. Because all we've been talking about is the arrival of the gospel. It's original fruit-bearing power among them. And here all of a sudden it says, as you also learned from Epaphras. So it's clear that he was the one who originally brought the gospel to them. He was the teacher, and he had taught them the truth. And so that's the first point in the justification of Epaphras, <coughs> that what he had taught was true. It was the grace of God in truth. The second point of justification with regard to Epaphras is that he is called our beloved fellow servant. Now, by these words, Paul marks him as an approved gospel laborer. First of all, he was not an unknown quantity to the apostle, all right? This was not someone that he was having to speculate on. That He was well known to Paul and Timothy, intimately known to Paul and Timothy. And not only was he known to them, he was loved by them. And you see, that's very important, because it marks him as a true Christian. This was someone with whom they had spiritual fellowship together, and mutual love. So he's marked as a Christian, and he's marked as an approved gospel laborer, because he said, he's our fellow servant. That's important. He, he, uh, he has this, they were serving the same Christ. They were in the same ministry of reconciliation. It is unthinkable that Paul would, would account someone and warmly embrace and honor them, someone who was twisting or perverting or, 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 or modifying the gospel message or the implications of the gospel message. He would not embrace him as a fellow servant. It says that we are in the same mission. Just like you say, this is my co-worker, means you work at the same job, in the same, in the, for the same company. This is my fellow servant. We work for the same master. We are engaged in the same line of work, for the same purpose. Now, in justifying him as an approved gospel laborer, of course, again, it reflects back on the message, doesn't it? Because if, they're, if he's a fellow servant, then he's a fellow servant in the same gospel. The same gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're back to that whole idea. The gospel that Epaphras delivered to you is the one that's present in all the world, and it's the one that we preach. <clears throat> now, 
That's a general justification of Epaphras' ministry, isn't it? He says, we love him, he's a dear Christian. He's our fellow servant, which means we're, we approve him as a, as a gospel laborer. He's communicating the same message that we do. That's the general justification, but he goes on from both the language before, as you learned of Epaphras, and also the language afterwards, who is, uh, for your sake, a faithful servant of Christ. In these words, he speaks specifically to Epaphras' ministry to the Colossians and justifies that. <coughs> he is, for your sakes, a faithful servant of Christ. First of all, he's a servant of Christ. His work is the work appointed by Christ. His gospel is the gospel given by Christ. He teaches Christ's word and obeys Christ's commission. Secondly, he's faithful in that capacity. He was one who rightly, who fully executed his master's commandments. He wasn't a lazy servant. He didn't shirk duty. He didn't bury the talent. He didn't avoid duty, nor was he a perverted servant. He didn't corrupt his duty. He didn't twist it. He fully, continuously, devotedly is carrying out his master's orders, and he's doing this expressly in his ministry, in his ministrations towards you. He's Christ's faithful servant for your sake. In all that he does among you, he's Christ's faithful servant. And this, of course, reminds us of an important truth about the ministry. The ministry does not exist for its own sake or for its own benefit or for its own aggrandizement. It is the gift of Christ to the church. It is there for the sake of the church, for edification and upbuilding. It is a servant ministry. The people do not serve the minister. The minister is a servant to the people and to Christ. Directly, he is a servant to Christ, receiving the commission from him. Indirectly to the church, because he serves among them, for them, to them. It is for their sake that he's doing all of these things. Epaphras was no Diotrephes, nor was he a Demas. He was no, he was no self-aggrandizing Diotrephes who loved to have the preeminence. He was a servant. And he was no Demas who would forsake the, the ministry and, and forsake Christ and his duty. No, he was faithful. And we'll consider more of this uh, a little later, uh, not today, but as we, uh, in fact, much later, as we return to the discussion of Epaphras in chapter 4, verse 12, as we'll hear something about specifically how it was that he was a faithful servant. For even in his absence from them, praying for them, in his prayers he was faithful. Now finally, it was this same Epaphras, verse 8, who had made known to Paul and Timothy the things which caused them to return thanks to God. He made known or he declared to us your love in the Spirit. Uh, these words are very significant. Uh, made known does not merely mean to tell. It means to make something manifest, to make it obviously evident. That's what this Greek word means. Let me, let me illustrate this meaning from a few other passages for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. It has been declared to me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now hold on to that thought for a moment. 1 Corinthians 3.13 he says, 
Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And 1 Corinthians 15, 27 says, For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. The idea thus far behind this word, it's more than just the saying of something. It's the evidencing of something. Chloe gave Paul evidence and proof, reliable testimony that it was true that contentions were there. Uh, The fire would reveal, it would prove, it would manifest beyond any shadow of a doubt what sort of work each man's was. This Old Testament passage that he quotes, he says it's obvious, manifestly evident from this passage, undeniable, that God is accept- that the Father is accepted when it speaks of the things that Christ would put under his feet. Let's go to two other passages that I think are good. Galatians 3.11 No man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Paul likes to use this word, this, this word when he uses scripture quotations because he's saying it's, it's obvious from the scriptures that such and so a thing is true. It's ma- undeniably, manifestly evident that men can't be justified by law in the sight of God because the scriptures say the just shall live by faith. Then finally, 1 Timothy 6-7, perhaps the best example, he says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That's the word again. It is manifest, it is evident, it is obvious, undeniable that we can carry nothing out. Why? Because in all of history, no one's ever carried anything out. So, he does not merely say, or I should say Epaphras did not merely show up, with Paul and Timothy and say, oh, those Colossians, they are so great in love in the spirit. No, not at all. He was able to relate evidences, occurrences that left it beyond doubt. He was able to show and irrefutably prove that the Colossians had love in the spirit. He he, he made it manifestly evident to us. Your love in the Spirit. That was one of the things that he had done. Now let's ask ourselves the questions, two questions. What is this love in the Spirit and why is it important? Love, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, is the crown of all Christian graces. The greatest of these is love, he says. It is an absolute, incontrovertible evidence of true salvation. 1 John 4.16, God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. Now, of course, this is not worldly love, this is not human affection, it is love in the Spirit. It is love of which the Spirit is the author, that comes only by him, comes only through him, and therefore its presence its presence, because it's an, it gets the love in the Spirit, and it's an irrefutable demonstration of true salvation, its presence is proof of the Spirit's work, both in individual people and in churches corporately. So that to declare this love, 
which Epaphras did to Paul and Timothy to give undeniable proofs of its presence and its work was to at once evidence both their sincere conversion to God and mark them as a true Christian congregation. Which, of course, brings us all the way back full circle to where we started. We give thanks to God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love to all the saints. The thanksgivings uh, of Paul and Timothy. Now, why uh, is it that the... uh, Love only here is mentioned. Why doesn't he say who who also declared to us your faith in Christ and your love in the Spirit? Well, I think that because for the last several verses we've been talking about the faith that they had in Christ, it wasn't necessary to repeat it as obvious uh, that it came from Epaphras. But he wants to especially emphasize that Epaphras declared to them not only their faith, but he gave us so many manifest proofs of your love in the Spirit. Now, we want to do what we did last week, uh, which is consider now the purpose of this section. And we'll have a little bit of review and then add on the new things. And we're going to hold the applications from this section till next week, because there are many. And so we just want to talk about the purpose of this section to Paul's discussion. And then uh, mention a couple of other things and we'll be finished. Remember that the purpose broadly here has been to call them back to a remembrance of the original gospel as it was preached to them, to lay the foundation for what's going to follow, which is the refutation of the errors as being inconsistent with this original gospel. And we identified seven distinct points from this last week uh, of how it met Paul's purposes. Uh, First of all, this was the gospel that they had originally heard. It was not a new doctrine like the the heresies that had now arisen. Those were new doctrines. This was the original gospel. Secondly, this gospel had declared to them the hope of the heavenly inheritance with eternal glory. What more could they need? How could you be looking for fullness from these new doctrines when you've got the promise right here of, of everything in the gospel? Thirdly, this gospel was the word of truth. The new was false if it contradicted this word. Fourthly, this gospel did not originate with them, but it arrived, and it arrived whole and complete, and they didn't have to alter it or add to it, nor could they or should they. They just had to receive it and believe it. Fifthly, this was the gospel known to the whole world. It wasn't localized. Like these errors that had crept up, this nonsense about fullness and gnosis and asceticism and Jewish ceremonies. That wasn't, th- nobody else had that. This was the gospel known to the whole world. Sixthly, this gospel was that which was working mightily in the world, bearing fruit, and it was bearing fruit of itself. This false gospel was a barren tree. Seventhly, this was the gospel that had worked so powerfully among them, so fully transforming them from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And if it had done all these things, if it was powerful enough to take them from death and sin and the power of Satan and transform them into the willing servants of God, was it not powerful enough to carry them on through sanctification? 
unto the heavens, of which it had a promise, how could you need anything else? Now he goes on. This was the gospel number eight, which had worked so powerfully in them from the very beginning, you see, in case they were inclined to doubt. Because you see, someone might put a seed of doubt in their mind when they got this letter and say, well, it's true that the gospel, you know, has worked here. But it was only after these other truths came that you really began to get the fullness. It was only, it was the gospel plus these other things. See, they weren't denying the gospel, they were adding to it. Well, the gospel's okay to start, but you need more to go on. No, Paul says, this, this gospel had worked so powerfully from the day you heard it and didn't require anything else from any other person. Number nine, you learned this gospel. You had a teacher. You were learners. You were instructed. You didn't write it. Just like when he said before, it arrived there. They heard it. They were learners when it came to this gospel. Number ten, this is the gospel that had brought, this original gospel was that which had brought light and truth to their minds. As before, he was talking about how it was bearing fruit, so now, how it had transformed them, so now, when all else had been darkness, when they couldn't see or know anything but error, this is what had ushered in light. This is what they had received a spiritual knowledge of and from. Not these other teachings. This was the source of their enlightened minds, their spiritual knowledge, and they had perceived it and known it. And how could they turn to anything else now? Number 11, what they had heard was truth as it set forth the grace of God and how important this is, we mustn't underestimate. Because remember that the nature of the opposition, as we'll see, was to put forth asceticism, Jewish ceremonies, the worship of angels, uh, all sorts of external observances and, and, and man-devised worship and ordinances to get to the fullness, to get to the, to the peak, to get to the second blessing. Paul says, the gospel is about the grace of God, the mercy of God. It's a spiritual thing. It's not about asceticism. It's not about do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's not about observing new moons. It's the grace of God that is works this transformation and it brings you sanctification as well. Not ordinances and especially not dead ordinances and especially not man-invented ordinances. It's the grace of God. It's a spiritual thing. Number 12, the man who declared this gospel to you has apostolic approval both as to his message and his character. Number 13, expressly in his ministrations towards you, he has been and is faithfully executing Christ's will and precept, and neither of those are we saying about these people who are teaching you now these things. They didn't come out from us. We don't receive them. We don't count them as brethren. They're not approved laborers. Now we said, so, so 13 things then, 
that we can draw from just here, laying the foundations for what would follow, honoring the gospel as they originally heard it, showing its sufficiency, showing its nature, showing its importance, showing the validity of the ministry of the man who brought it to them. <clears throat> now the second thing I want to mention, which I said I would, I would talk about earlier, is why it was important that they discussed and, and, and validated the ministry of Epaphras. Why not just talk about the gospel? Why talk about Epaphras too? What, what's, what's a man to be worrying about? Well, of course we know that it is Paul's general policy in the epistles to recognize and commend faithful gospel workers. He does that all the time. Raise their esteem in the eyes of the people uh, to, to significant uh, uh, mark. But that's not really what's going on here, I don't think, principally. We have to remember that if there were false doctrines that had arisen, and obviously people who had embraced them, and obviously someone was teaching them, and Epaphras was teaching the original gospel, then there was a conflict going on. And as Epaphras presented this original gospel, he would have been under fire from those spreading false doctrine. And they were seeking to undermine him two ways, as they always do, his message and his character. Because if you get at the character, you get at the message. And if they did that, it would really, if they could, if they could manipulate the minds of the people to think that Epaphras was, was other than what he was, that he was not that he was not faithful, that he was not doing what he was doing as, out of servanthood to them, if they could make them think he was a self-seeking person, uh, uh, anything, then they could cut out from under him all his authority in his preaching in the church. And particularly, think about the possibilities. Epaphras has gone to the Apostle Paul to... <laughs> Tell on them, if you will. All they had to do was start circulating, capitalizing on the fact Epaphras went to Paul and gave a bad report. He said bad things about our congregation. All he told him was that we were full of error and lies. All he told him was that was that we have false that, that we're teaching false doctrine here. And, and you see how this could snowball? Epaphras running off telling the apostle, everything's messed up in Colossae. It's full of false doctrine, all these terrible things going on. What a, look, Epaphras is our enemy. No. Paul answers this in two ways, for three ways really, or more. First of all, he establishes unquestionably Epaphras' authority. He says... He is a servant of Christ. He is our fellow servant. There is no question about the authority of Epaphras as a gospel laborer. That's the first thing he does. Epaphras, we recognize he has authority. Secondly, it's not enough though, you see, because you might, Paul might give all the, establish him as all the authority in the world, and still there's this foothold in these people's hearts to say, but he's running around saying bad things about us. So he makes sure 
he doesn't talk about the fact that Ep- it was Epaphras who gave him the report uh, of the problems of the congregation. He doesn't even mention that. It's like he just knows it. Although it's obvious that it's Epaphras that gave it to them. What does he talk about? He says, Epaphras told us about how you believe the gospel. Epaphras told us about how you love all the brethren. Uh, he, he gave us so many instances of your love in the Spirit that it is undeniably, manifestly evident that you have such a love, that you are the people of God, that you're pure in heart. You see, he talks about... about and Epaphras, it wasn't a lie. Epaphras did report these things. But the point is, is that they would... If he didn't talk about them, then there, there's always this possibility to latch on to the negative things that he said. And, and, and in fact, he goes on, he doesn't even talk about the fact that he's just said good things about you and all this. He goes on to also demonstrate, so he establishes his authority, he says he didn't just deliver a bad message, he talked about how, 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 how marvelous the work of God has been among you. And we're thanking God for it. And thirdly, he shows that Epaphras loves them. And that he, what he does for them, he does as their servant. To build them up in the faith. He talks about how he was a faithful servant of Christ in his ministrations to them. He was a servant, he was a faithful servant. And, and that's the importance of Colossians 4.12. How he labors for you in, your pray, in his prayers that you might stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, and that He has a great zeal for you. See, He shows Epaphras Epaphras loves them and is devoted to them, and to ministering to them, and to doing good for them. And what this is about, this report of Paul, the problems, uh, that is part of His service. His service in the gospel. So it's very important then, uh, for those reasons that he that he establish the validity of Epaphras' ministry and and defends his character and his uh, his doctrine and his office, his official authority. Next week, then we will. Uh, re- begin with the applications to us from this section, and then, uh, Lord willing, we'll begin to look at the continuation of the prayer, or the return to the prayer, in verses 9 through 12, which will be our next section.